You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to part five of our discussion of The Winner's Tale. In parts five and six, we will be discussing acts four and five. So we just got done discussing act three and some of the action with Hermione and Paulina noted that they use language in a different and more persuasive way and talked a little bit about the concept of evidence and the oracle and all that stuff. And now we are going to get a very different scene. I guess at the end, we already moved to the desert. The end of act three, we moved to the desert of Bohemia. But now we're going to fast forward 16 years and Shakespeare will directly apologize to us for that, (laughs) (laughs) for just taking a big shortcut there and having, well, I guess his shortcut is the way he handles this is to have the personification of time come out and tell us that he's going to be sliding over 16 years. Time begs forgiveness and essentially says, but think about it. I'm so powerful. I can overthrow law and custom, you know, laws change, customs change over time. Time is powerful enough. In other words, (laughs) I'm going to apologize for this trick of fast forwarding, but as the personification of time, I can do that. It's a, it's a very funny way of excusing himself by personifying time. If only Shakespeare were a screenwriter, he could just say, here is a title card that says 16 years later or something like that. And instead he has to do this whole song and dance. I guess he could have had someone come out with a card. Is there, <laughs> That's true. Is there a way to do this without that? <laughs> how would you, how would you <laughs> clue the audience in? It would probably emerge on emerge from context. That's true. But the grunts might not like that. They might start throwing things. Is there anything else of significance to get from the, the section on time? Well, you know, we get a little prefigurement of, you know, as we have all along, of some of the, what do we want to call it, horticultural imagery (laughs) that's going to come up uh, throughout Act 4. So Time says, I turn my glass and give my scenes such growing as you had slept between. This Mm -hmm. image of things growing, of profundity, of profusion, I think is going to be important in this pastoral act. And then in uh, line 24, Time says, to speak of Perdita, now grown in grace, equal with wondering. This idea of grace and and growing coming together. Presumably, she's growing more and more like her mother, Hermione, because Hermione is the image of the figure of grace in the, the, uh, I almost said in the film, figure of grace in the play. (laughs) So yeah, I think hints of this are shooting up here. They're sprouting and uh, it'll come to full flower maybe later uh, in in act four, scene four, I think is when it comes (laughs) up. Right, right. Right. But one of the things that I I think I've come to understand about Act Four, and it's kind of unnecessary length. I don't know if this is too early to give a bird's eye view of the entire act. It's just that the length is doing some work here to help us shift tonally. It's providing some insulation, if you will, from the tragedies that have just occurred because people have just died in, you know, grievous ways. Mm. And now we have to forget our troubles and get happy. So something about the length, I think, is helpful. And even the speech by time, maybe it's oddity and maybe the fact that it isn't just a title card is helping that prolongment as we shift into something different here. Yeah. 
Is this his long? I mean, it's not his longest. Hamlet is his longest. This strikes me as a very long play, but I didn't really check that to see. It is one of the longest, one of the longer. I don't think it's. Okay. I'm looking now I'm looking at the stats and it seems like there's a lot of other much longer plays. So why does it feel so long? It's kind of in the middle. So no way. Really? I thought it would be in the top, say quarter of, I guess, no, you, I guess you're right. It is in the top quarter, but Hamlet longest Richard III, Coriolanus, Coriolanus, uh, Cymbeline, Othello, King Lear, Henry V, Troilus and Cressida, Henry IV. So I just read all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The two Henry IVs are longer. So act four is very long. So I don't know. Yeah. I didn't analyze this specifically, but I, you know, I suppose it feels longer because in a way it is two plays divided by 16 years and we transitioned to a much different place as well in act four you know we saw a little bit of bohemia in act three but that was the desert and now apparently bohemia includes a little bit of english countryside (laughs) as well because that's the way it actually feels and it's important right that we are making this transition to something pastoral something rustic it's important that perdita now be a shepherd's daughter and that she will be the mistress of the sheep shearing. It's a context of renewal and animal husbandry. Is that, <laughs> I don't know why that's just something. <laughs> so let's leave that part out. It's a context of renewal and rebirth and the birds and the bees, so to speak. And we're going to try and figure out in these last two parts of our discussion how that recompenses everything that's gone before and what the deeper connection is between Leontes jealousy and difficulty with the concept of gratitude and you know problems not just with Hermione but his own child and his relationship with Polixenes and finally if I you know if my thesis has any weight this whole concept of the relationship between mind and world I think we want to try to figure out how all of this rustic context and these young, how that kind of renewal pay all of that off. You're reminding me that, you know, the transition actually comes a a little bit sooner, or maybe we just glossed over this at the end of the last episode. It's uh, difficult to say now, but act three, scene three is really, I think the transition it's one between the hinge point is the famous exit pursued by a bear. Did we talk about that? Yeah. We did talk about that. Okay. And then the transition into prose, which is as an obvious a shift of tone as anything, perhaps. But you're putting me in mind of the shepherd in Act 3, Scene 3, around line 107, 108. The shepherd referring to what the clown has just reported to have seen, his son, the clown, has reported to have seen, which was not only... Antigonus being eaten, but then everyone in the ship becoming flapdragoned by the sea, uh, <laughs> a word that I'm not going to put into every single poem I write. Not really. But anyway, <laughs> the, the description of, of what's happened to both to Antigonus and his apparent dismemberment by this bear and of the ship getting flapdragoned about, of course, has become funny already. Like this is already a kind of a joke. So anyway, the clown reports this back to the shepherd and the shepherd says, heavy matters, heavy matters. But look thee here, boy, now bless thyself. Thou metst with things dying, I with things newborn. 
heavy matters, heavy matters is, is almost kind of funny in itself. It reminds me of, is it 80s slang to say like, oh, that's heavy, man. It's real heavy. <laughs> it must be, right? Because we were talking about, oh, we, I think uh, Back to the Future. Doc makes a comment about whether or not things have more mass or weight in the future because, uh, <laughs> because Marty keeps saying, that's heavy, man. <laughs> and so anyway, the transition here in the shepherd's speech is signaled for us before time even enters with thou metst with things dying, I with things newborn. And I'm wondering if this is a little bit of a, you know, it's literally a turn signal within the text mm. to say that was tragedy, right? Tragedy is meeting with things dying. Comedy is something about being reborn, something mm. about, well, I said, I said reborn, which is an interesting um, mistake, but newborn, uh, maybe reborn too. Something about birth seems inherent to comedy. Yeah. Maybe what is that? The birth of laughter, um, something about maybe surprise being inherent to comedy. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't thought that through. You know, the comedies generally get the young lovers together in general. Usually people are hooked up by the end of a comedy. So comedy, strictly speaking, is just a, just means a happy ending and typically an ending that unites spouses or lovers, right? In tragedy, everyone dies. In comedy, everyone pairs up. <laughs> it's sex and death, essentially. It provides and then, the engine for birth. Yeah. Exactly. So the engine of renewal and why do we... Yeah, I think it's a good question. Why is that in particular associated with hijinks and laughter and funniness? Why is it the romantic comedy typically and the, not the romantic drama? I guess if there's drama, people are not getting along, <laughs> essentially. But in any case, yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, we get the turn signal, as you put it in the text, that we're going to go to what is newborn and reborn. This scene reminded me of the Tempest in that Miranda witnesses a shipwreck, which turns out to be the cargo of that shipwreck includes her future husband, it includes her father's enemies, but also her future husband. And when she sees it, she feels this tremendous empathy and talks about how much it hurt her to, I forget the exact words, but to see this, this happening to these people. In this case, the clown, the son, kind of sees it as a joke, or it's played not for empathy and not for sympathy, but for, for laughs. And it's interesting in that it kind of inverts that scene in The Tempest. Perdita, of course, is just a baby at these, this point, and she can't, um, and she's, you know, the shipwreck is of the, it has something to do with the past, not with the future, right? The shipwreck kind of, in, for Miranda, is a forward looking event and her father has essentially brought these people or had a role in bringing these people to the island in this case it's a way of casting off the past it seems like kind of a harsh fate for antigonus but symbolically it seems important that the past be shipwrecked so to speak or gotten rid of but is miranda remind me is she watching it happen like we're watching her watch this shipwreck happen or, or does she report it? She's reporting it to Prospero, if I remember correctly. Okay. So similar situation here where we don't see the clown see it, but he comes back and reports it almost immediately thereafter. That kind of ruins my little, <laughs> my little thesis, but I, I think it still, what do you it still mean? holds true. I'm thinking about, is it Mark Twain who said that comedy equals tragedy plus time? 
I'm wondering if I if I could tie that together. Or is that Alan the, Alda? <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. Um, Hal Holbrook. I don't know. Is it is that Mark Twain? I think it might be. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, what Woody Allen movie was that in? The Alan Alda was that Crimes and Misdemeanors? Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if there was a difference maybe in tone between the Miranda and the, and the clown scenes because Miranda was seeing it live, as it were, and the, the clown is reporting it, but that doesn't hold up. But I do think it's interesting that so much in the second half of the play is reported to us after the fact. Even the the reconciliation that'll come in Act 5, spoiler alert, that is reported to us Shakespeare's after. much criticized for that. Mm-hmm though I can't quite make a distinction between Miranda and the clown here in terms of how they report the shipwreck. On a literal level, I mean, we have time. <laughs> time is a body or a person, um, a, a body of people or a person, you know, coming in and putting just some distance between, and this is maybe what I'm trying to suggest about the length of Act 4, the fact that it seems so incredibly long and this insulation that we need from the tragedy. Like we literally just need a little bit of time in order to think that, what, that something tragic can actually turn into something funny? I think we do need a sense of the passing of time. Insulation, I think, is a good, is a good word. Mm. It's not enough just to cut to some scene with a shepherdess or whatever, and we quickly infer that it's Perdita we need. Time's appearance itself is comic, and Shakespeare is giving a, you know, he's poking fun at himself to some extent. So he takes us out of the play a bit and then puts us, lands us nice and softly back down in it with a different attitude. And as you point out, he's already done that with the pursued by bear <laughs> bit and making fun of the a scene at the end, which might otherwise have been construed as tragic. It's pretty clever to make a comedy out of a tragic scene and then make that the seed of this rebirth. I mean, I guess Antigonus's death is funny and we get this gruesome description from, from the clown that the bear tore out his shoulder bone mm-hmm. while Antigonus was still crying to him. Why is that funny? Or that the bear half dined on the gentleman, he's at it now. So he's still, as we speak, consuming Antigonus, who hopefully by this point is dead. <laughs> but, you know, why is that funny? I'm thinking about, I don't know, something like I'm a great fan of Buster Keaton or... Chaplin, you know, often <laughs> the slapstick of dismemberment. Yes, yes, but also the fact that so often their films are about men that are down and out. Lots of Buster Keaton shorts begin with him losing his job and being out on the street, and then a series of misfortunes happen to him. And for some reason, they're funny because there's a slapstick element to it. But if we were to take that same premise and say, you know, an Italian neorealist film, like bicycle thieves, you know, everything goes wrong and that's a tragedy. He loses whatever, these films all all follow this trope, but right of like one terrible thing after another happening to some poor schmuck, you know? And why is it funny in a Keaton film and it's tragic and sad and heartrending in something like bicycle thieves? You know, there's a very fine line and, and some of it is just Keaton's movements like his body the way his body moves and yeah the little slapstick kind of jokes that punctuate everything so is that what this comes down to that Shakespeare this you know this great writer of wonderful lines and everything all he has to do is kind of like turn Antigonus into a slapstick buffet and (laughs) and that's what makes the difference I think the slapstick is part of it and also we are taken out 
of the play a bit because it's a bit abrupt and farcical. And in fact, this is one of the things that is described later on in the play as something like an old tale, or right, an old wives' tale or a winner's tale. This is one of the things that draws our attention to the fact that we ought not to take all of this too seriously. We've been drawn into the tragic frame. We've really been drawn into a kind of psychologically realistic narrative up to this point. And now we're being hit on the head and told that actually this is just a silly old wives tale. And I think from that perspective, it's easier to look at this in a more comic context on top of the way the, you know, the clowns, funny descriptions and, and all that stuff. Reading this, I found the clown and the shepherd's reactions to be strange. The act ends with the shepherd saying, tis a lucky day, boy, and we'll do good deeds on it. Of course, they've just found gold, but they've also just found a child, (laughs) an abandoned child that is now going to become a daughter. I guess it depends on your point of view, whether you see that sort of thing as lucky, especially in the context of the person who's obviously brought the baby being killed along with all of his crew. So they're describing something unfortunate as something that's from their perspective. Certainly lucky for the baby who would have otherwise <laughs> right, died right. of exposure. So, right, of course, yeah. But in any case, you know, the next scene too, we don't, you know, we're not going to get the countryside quite yet. We're now in the palace. This is the wife swap portion of the... <laughs> Camillo is, I see him as like a serial monogamist. Mm-hmm. Now he's been Polixenes BFF for, <laughs> for 16 years. Yeah, he's filled the friend vacuum that Leontes left for Polixenes. Yeah, this scene is mainly just exposition and I didn't take a lot of notes on it. You know, we learn that Camilo wants to return, Polixenes wants him to stay, then we get introduced to Florizel, of late much retired from court. Does that remind you of anyone? A little Prince Hal action going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less mm-hmm. frequent to his princely exercises and hanging out with the shepherd and his hot daughter. So we find that out. And then we're going <laughs> to find out that they're going to go disguised. They're going to go to see what's going on in disguises. Is there anything that's more than exposition in this scene? I think just one thing, which is Polixenes says that he fears that Perdita or this, this shepherd's daughter is the angle that plucks our son thither. Mm. So this is just another twist of this fishing metaphor that's been running all the way through. Now, she, the vixen, is the angler and Florizel is the fish. But of course, they're going to go on their own fishing expedition to get information. And by putting on disguises, this is some heavy comedy signaling from people who, you know, the last time we saw them were fleeing for their lives (laughs) from Sicilia. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Women with their angles, with their ulterior motives. So many angles. (laughs) That's and right. Part of that angle involves having curves, ironically. Boom, boom. Sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> curves for angles, but in any case, <laughs> you know. So now, yeah, going into scene four point three, we're gonna have to try to make sense of Autolycus. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing that the way you you pronounce it? Yes. And so he's a scoundrel and a robber, and but he seems to be an agent of fortune, a mercenary of fortune. No, he's, he's an agent of some of the good things that happen in the play, even though he's trying to fleece people. Talk about someone with an angle. 
I never realized until you said this that he's basically just Han Solo. Like he comes, he comes <laughs> right. in. And- <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. He has a more um, kind of lower class feel in a way than Han Solo. And I, I don't know. That's a great comparison. Kid, I just want my money, kid. Yeah. Right. If Han Solo was also like, I helping. will take you to the <laughs> wherever you need to go. <laughs> Get in my <laughs> right. ship. Exactly. And if he was also helping Luke and Leia get together as a couple, which would be a bad thing for their children. But anyway. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) So when he comes in, you know, we have daffodils begin to peer. You know, things are budding. Things are coming up out of the ground. He's announcing that spring is here, but it seems like with this intrusion of of music, of course, music is also something else we could talk about as a a feature of Mm. Shakespeare's comedies, maybe of comedy in general. I don't know. Maybe I should think of it not as gaining layers, but as shedding layers, right? We're going from kind of cold Sicilia, maybe into this this warm spring of, of Bohemia. So we're shedding layers of this tragedy. When Autolycus comes in, that's really when the fun starts. That's really when the comedy happens with the song. Yeah, it's much easier. You know, if you see a good performance of this, it's much easier to grasp. On the written page, when I start to see the songs, my eyes glaze over a little bit. And I Aww. have, and it's, it was the same thing with J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> okay, where's the violence? Where's the violence? Oh, no. Now we, we've got Tom Bombadil doing an enormous song here. <laughs> I do love musicals. So, but so seeing it performed, it's really great. And it really adds, of course, this comic element and this musical element. If it's done well, I really like this, the way this is done in the BBC. And, you know, lines like, for the red blood reigns and the winter's pale. Mm. I really love that. The idea that there's something as winter fades and spring arrives, that there's something blood-like involved. I'm thinking of the sun, but what, what does he mean there? Mm. Yeah, I think the more literal meaning is people being red-blooded and desire and rebirth and all of that. Blood, in other words, is associated not just with tragedy and death, but birth is bloody and people's cheeks get flushed. You imagine young maidens with their red cheeks and you imagine young people with their red-bloodedness and Americans with their red-bloodedness. Just kidding. As in, I'm a red-blooded American. <laughs> and I think that's another, another hinge between tragedy and comedy, the concept of blood, which can be taken in a different way. No, I'm just thinking about, you know, maybe there's something here about the kind of hibernation or that this pallor kind of like requires rosiness to follow Mm -hmm. it or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the winter's pale. It almost makes me imagine a cheek and then the, whether you apply makeup or you hit your cheeks to bring out a little color. (laughs) Color is now, you know, and of course we can think of flowers blooming. We can think of this in in many ways, but a colorless world becomes colorful. Things are frozen over. Things are hibernating, including the bears up to a point (laughs) until they kill you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now everything is blooming, everything's coming out. So why, you know, why is the thief and the scoundrel the the person to kind of announce spring here and sexual passion? And he's someone who trucks in deception and some of it is just outright pickpocketing and some of it is he's getting people later we will see him get people to buy these songs which are themselves essentially old wives tales outlandish tales and you know that he claims are true but 
he knows how to manipulate people into buying them because they're designed to be bought for one's mistress. So I guess maybe maybe I'm answering my <laughs> my own question here, which is that you know it's suitable for him to be the one to announce spring because he's a deceiver because in a way sex sells so to speak and that's one of the the means of his means of manipulating people and also in general right he's selling trinkets and these songs and things that men can use to please their mistresses but in general it speaks to the plumage of spring and these characteristics that are the result of sexual selection in other words why are the flowers out? Why are the flowers so beautiful? Why are the birds so beautiful? Why this is all the result? You might think of them as the kind of nature's trinkets or decorations that are designed to produce. They have the function of producing sexual attraction. And whether or not you think of that as, well, that's so that's very superficial, or maybe there's something profound about it here, it is the Suitably, I think the deceiver who represents that. I don't know. Does I, that make I like sense? that a lot. Yeah. I no, it does. You're also illuminating for me something interesting. I think that's happened in his song, which I didn't notice before. Which is, you know, we just talked about for the red blood rains and the winter's pale in line four. In line five, it's followed by the white sheet bleaching on the hedge, and then we have the birds singing and everything. And then, as you mentioned, Autolycus will say, "My traffic is sheets." Mm obviously ballads, but also, yep. of course, um, bed sheets and, uh, you know, because he's, he's a randy guy, right? So, so the winter's pale, that image of whiteness and, and as you're suggesting, a sort of, you know, a sheet of ice over things, then becomes the white sheet bleaching on the hedge. I guess I'm interested in this idea of whiteness or of pallor becoming for Autolycus the pallor then, then kind of stained with a blush or the sheet, uh, the ballad sheet brought to life by the text that then colors it, right? Or brought to life in the actual performance of singing. Or in the performance, absolutely, right, yeah. And which would put us in mind of what's going to happen later with the statue becoming animated, coming to life, right? So we could think of maybe a written text uh, mm. by that same token, right, as being like the statue which needs the actors to animate it. This is actually... <laughs> Reminds me of something I, I saw in a, a really great Stella Adler lecture where she talked about, I think it was a, one of her great lectures on Chekhov plays, where she talked about how she was suspicious of anyone who says that they like to read plays, mm. which uh, I count myself as someone who likes <laughs> to read plays. But she says that basically the play is like a dead thing. And um, mm. if you're not seeing it in performance, then you're not actually seeing. Reading the play is not actually experiencing the play. Like it needs to be performed. The thing on the page is just a dead thing. It's not even, it's only like 50% there. Yeah. This transition too, between four and five, lines four and five, I'm thinking about, you know, when does whiteness mean death and pallor and snow and rhyme? And when does it mean cream and bed sheets and freshness and light and virginity, right? That's, that's then ripe for the blush to enter. When does it mean the statue and when does it mean the living woman or the written word and the performed play? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. You're giving me a connection to one of the other themes here because, yeah, I like this idea that the written word in a sense is something desiccated, you know, where you add water mm-hmm. and then it becomes something or it's like a code of some sort, like a record where things are latent, but then you have to put the needle down and it becomes music and 
some people can do that in their imagination. I have a bit of trouble translating the play in my imagination into, I thoroughly enjoy it, but it's also, I more enjoy seeing it performed. Well, I guess they're two different forms of enjoyment because I can pay more attention to the language when I'm reading and I miss a lot of it in the, in the performance. You know, it's a matter of how we bring things to life. We bring them to life with our imagination, but one can also, you know, someone can bring them to life with a performance. And it seems to go for language in general. Someone speaks to us and it's just words. It's just sounds until we as interpreters can do something with that. And we had talked before about the thank you being a cipher and how it is that something purely mental or linguistic or something like that could recompense physical reality, the hospitality given to a guest, the inadequacy of the mind to the world. And I think there is something of that here so that something in a way, language is like something dormant and pale or something that's, that's hibernating in its little winter cave or something like that until it can be given an interpretation by another mind. And then there's always the perils involved in that interpretation. If you're paranoid, it could be construed in a way that makes you psychotically jealous, as with Leontes. So springtime, in a way, is a different type of interpretation. It's the antithesis of the jealous interpretation. It takes what's desiccated, and then it produces uh, something bountiful out of that, something generous. Our sponsor for this episode is St. John's College, which turns out to be my alma mater. St. John's College is for students who seek meaning in their lives and who want to ask hard questions of themselves and the world. At St. John's, students explore 3,000 years of human thought, confronting fundamental human questions while engaging with history's most influential works of philosophy, literature, math, science, music, political history, and more. At St. John's, our vibrant community of learners examine works as divergent as Aristotle and Aquinas, Einstein and Nietzsche, Bach and Baldwin. Together, students learn to question their own perspectives while listening to a multiplicity of others, opening up a world of possibility, thought, and a truly diverse and respectful community. At St. John's, students are also supported toward academic and life success with summer preparation programs, Pell Grant matches, merit scholarships, generous student aid, paid internships, career supports, and a faculty-student ratio of 7 to 1. Graduates pursue careers in law, education, media, public policy, science, and more. Learn more about their undergraduate and graduate Great Books programs in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Annapolis, Maryland at sjc.edu slash subtext. That's sjc.edu slash subtext. You're making me want to provide a, a reading or a connection, which I, which I don't quite have, it's just burgeoning, to Autolycus's obsession with money and pickpocketing, because that money seems to me to be part of this kind of universe of latency mm. that you're talking about yeah. here. I'm thinking, too, about the fact that when he meets the clown, the clown is going out to get ingredients for the, <laughs> for, for the feast, right? So the ingredients have to come together to produce the, the final And he's effect. trying to figure out what things cost and does he have enough? Mm -hmm. Do some calculation. Maybe the money that in the end, you know, Autolycus then decides to, when he does decide to help, when he is kind of spurred toward a good deed, which in, in a way seems to, I mean, he's not a terrible guy. He's, you know, kind of 
roguish and funny and charming and all those, you know, Han Solo <laughs> qualities, right? <laughs> but in the end, when he decides to actually do the good deed, I want to, but I can't quite make the connection between this idea of like, you know, money's latency and then actually putting it to use, being put in towards a good, towards an action, towards actually producing something. I like that though. The thief is is taking this currency, which which only has value in exchange in a kind of human interaction. But in general, he's the rogue, right? And he could be more like an Iago. He could be doing very destructive things within the play. Mm-hmm. But his roguishness has a invisible hand quality to it. His selfishness is going to actually serve a higher good. So yeah, I get your association. I can't spell it out on the fly any better than you just did. But this, that I like that phrase, the universe of latency. I love this one line, the, oh, where is it? The kite. When the kite builds. Yes, 23. Right. When the kite builds, look to lesser linen. The lesser linen being the thing that the ballads are written on, the sheets, although again, there's the double entendre. You see the bird, right? I guess it's a bird of prey getting high in the sky, right? Am I understand that he's speaking of a bird of prey there getting, mm-hmm. and that this is an association of spring. And so you imagine this happening over maybe a sheet Thinking back to the earlier part of the song, the sheet being out on the line, bleaching or bleaching on the hedge. But something here about, for thinking of the sheets as what the ballads are written on, something about the bird of prey. I don't know. I feel like I'm also, I'm missing something. <laughs> Except for the, the association of the bird of prey with spring. Something high, you know, of course, the overall import of that line is there's something high and noble about that. But that's his signal to do something lowly. So that he's mm. being induced by that noble event into his, you know, it's now the time for me to start stealing. It's now time for me to start getting people to buy these ballads. And may, maybe it speaks to something about the high and noble passion of love and how one can make use of that, right? One can traffic in unconsidered trifles when people start getting randy <laughs> when, <they're, laughs> when their cheeks start getting flush, when they get, start getting loving. The deceiver, that's the time for the deceiver to make his move and prey on that. And he's also part of that sexual economy as well, right? Because as a bird of prey, the question is, what might he be snapping up? You know, like lock up your wives kind of. (laughs) Is that also inherent to this idea of the kite? So he says, snap her up of unconsidered trifles. And in my text, it says points to his rags. I had said before that he was selling the trifles, so I was misreading that. Later on, it'll be trinkets that he sells. So So he's dumpster diving, essentially. He's he's picking up used things, and when people are moving out on September 1st of their apartments, he's there to to pick up. Or he's he's going uh, thrift shopping. So anyway, I'm reminded that Macklemore song which is about thrift shopping. Anyway, I can't Oh, remember. I can't help you there. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, and then the little the little remark about the gallows at the, the end, him being terrified of beating and hanging. <laughs> so his revenue is the silly cheat. He's telling us that he's, he's not running around killing people and he's doing more minor crimes. And then the, the clown comes in and the clown, of course, he's going <laughs> to... He's going to pretend to be hurt so that the, you know, when the clown tries to help him, he can rob him. Mm. And maybe we should move on to scene four now. I find the language to be quite difficult in this scene. It really took me a while to decipher some of it. And in general, 
that seems to be the way with these late plays much more i think we've already mentioned that much more syntactically complicated in general but here quite involves quite intricate i attributed the difficulty of leonti's speeches towards the beginning of the play to the tortured thoughts that he's having and the way that he tries to work out you know he wants to get to the predestined answer which he has decided upon right so he has to kind of take this circuitous route mentally to get him there here these speeches between Florizel and Perdita, the difficulty is indicative of a dance or of trying to kind of impress each other, or maybe just of having a lot of, speaking of latency, maybe a lot of like latent sexual energy that they're channeling into these over overdone, overwrought kinds of turns of phrase. I don't know. I think you're right that the style is just indicative of, of Shakespeare's, of his late style overall. But I think it kind of fades in and out. You know, sometimes we get a smoother read and then we'll come to a particularly gnarly patch mm-hmm. after a while of coasting, you know. So I guess I'm looking for for the reason as to why this would be occurring in a scene which would, if we had to guess, we would say, oh, a scene between two lovers where they're declaring their love for each other and they're just being happy. That would, you know, if I had to guess, maybe that would be a coasting scene. <laughs> In terms of the difficulty of language, instead it's gnarly, as I said, and uh, or flowery, ornamental. Flowery. Mm, so. That's that's much better. <laughs> Lots yeah, of flowers. I mean, I, but I think your point is very important, which is that we have these different forms of rhetoric or ways of speaking in the play, and that includes the intricacies of Leonti's jealousy, but also the smooth writing. As I, that's the way I experienced it. Of Paulina's persuasiveness and Hermione's persuasiveness. Those are the people who Mm -hmm. speak very well in the play and powerfully. But now the language of love, it seems to be that with the language of love, we're back to this intricate language, which if we think about it in terms of gnarliness or floweriness is appropriate to what we described before as the sort of the outer exterior or charm involved in winning people over. And then also, you know, as we talked about in Much Ado About Nothing, it forms a kind of insulation as well. It's really charming to see this performed. The BBC, the performance I've recommended, the girl who's playing Perdita, seems to be closely matched with her actual age in the play, which is, I think, 16, right? Mm. So it's quite charming to see a 16-year-old speak in this. They're speaking in a way that's quite formal. And of course, Florizel is, you give life to weeds and you're basically the personification of spring and he's loading all these compliments onto her and she's demurring and saying, no, you're the high one. You're the prince. You know, he's just called her the queen of the sheep cheering. It's very important that she's metaphorically royalty in the situation and he's not right. So he's royalty in real life, but in this particular context, she's royal and he's paying her homage and she's saying, no, you're the one who's the prince. And then that leads to, of course, worries about what happens when Polixenes finds out. But I find, yeah, I find, again, the intricacy of the love language very charming. Something you said there about the topsy-turviness of this, it's also, there's a lot of irony here, of course, because we know that Perdita is the mm-hmm. princess of Sicilia, right? Um, she does not know. So there's a little bit of, you know, maybe part of the thorniness is this circle within a circle within a circle of the fact that she is saying, for instance, in line seven, your high self, the gracious mark of the land, you have obscured with a swain's wearing and me, poor lowly maid, most goddess-like pranked up. So Pranked up. 
pranked up. I know. I love that. It too. sounds like deception. It sounds very low, but you know, the contrast with goddess just gotta love Shakespeare. She really is like a Victor Victoria joke in here, you know, like a, a woman pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. You know, she's a princess who thinks she's a shepherdess who's dressed up as a goddess. There's a complication here. And of course, I like what you point out about the formality as well, because they're in marriage negotiations. And though they don't know it, they are both royal. So part of what they're doing is that they're unwittingly forging a kind of a treaty, right? These are affairs of state. <laughs> mm. The joining of two kingdoms is involved here. I wonder about that significance in light of this difficulty in, in the language or about any flirtation, potential marital negotiation as having subtextually, everybody can drink at home, <laughs> a kind of formality or a deadly seriousness to it, which this is performing in the, as we're saying, in the thorniness of the language and in the kind of thorniness of the irony of the situation. And the fact that we're all, oh, you know, you know what I could say about this, right? We all are playing dress up. We all are kind of like making negotiations with each other and putting on various disguises. I mean, hopefully not for long, right? But, but this is part of the art of love mm -hmm. or of wooing someone. Yeah, and this is part of the petals on the flower, the, the charms that, you, that one uses to attract. But in this case, they're flirting but also it's very courtly and it reflects their high station, the high, including Perdita's high station, which she doesn't know about. But she, as is commented on in the play, doesn't really act like a shepherd's daughter. So it's just genetically, <laughs> she has right. this air of a princess about her. It's not that she has the two buns on the side of her head so that we know <laughs> she's a princess, <laughs> even though she's down and out. <laughs> <laughs> Although she might, I guess, in some performances. But in any case, uh, she's genetically royalty. And it looks like with the falcon, Florizel finds her because a falcon flies across the, the shepherd's ground. And, you know, this is also ancient signs of prophecies. It looks like he's been led there. I can't help thinking of the kite that Autolycus mentions as in a way as a sign of love. But so Florizel counts that as a blessing, but they have something that is hanging over them that needs to be resolved. And as Perdita puts it, your resolution cannot hold when it is opposed by the power of the king. Although resolution here is, is he's adamant that come what may, they are going to be together. And it's at that point where we get the entrance of all these people, Shepherd, Clown, Mopsa, and Dorcas. What great names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The two, Great's one the word two women it. who yeah. are fighting over the shepherd's son, the clown. And then, of course, Polixenes and Camilla in disguise. And it's a very lovely scene with Perdita playing her role as mistress of the feast or the sheep shearing. It starts out with the shepherd reminiscing about her mother and all the multiple roles that she would play in a time like this and feeding people and getting up on tables and dancing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very raucous. And I playfully chastises Perdita for not doing that. But of course that, again, she's a princess and she's, she acts that way naturally. So, and you get the sense he understands that. So in the end, he just encourages her to introduce herself. And then she gives that wonderful, you know, her speech about flowers and she gives... Polixenes and Camilo, the flowers that they're flowers of winter because they 
suit their ages. And then she says she doesn't really like the flowers of spring. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll have to go to the specific things she says about. She gets very saucy, actually, at this point. I think Polixenes asked her why not, and let's go to this point. So Perdita says something that took me a while to puzzle out. Art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature. So let's go to that. This is around 89. So she's listing, give me those flowers there, Dorcas, reverencers. For you, there's rosemary and rue. These keep seeming and savor all winter long. Oh, it's Polixenes who says she well fits their ages with flowers of winter. And then it's, she says, Sir, the year growing ancient, not yet on summer's death, nor on the birth of trembling winter. The fairest flowers of the season are carnations and streaked gillivores, which some call nature's bastards. Of that kind are rustic gardens barren, and I care not to get slips of them. And Polixenes asks why. For I have heard it said there is an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature. What she's saying, and this I had to look up, what she's saying is that these flowers, are they of summer or spring? I'm not the gillivores. But in any case, the fairest flowers are, have been domesticated. They're multicolored and so pretty because they've been domesticated to be that way. Keep in mind that at the beginning, Florizels, you can make flowers out of weeds. That's how wonderful you are. And she seems to be drawn to the weeds. Those are the flowers that she likes. So basically, when people domesticate the flowers, they're playing God, is what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Then Polixenes essentially says, but nature is what makes the horticultural art possible. You can make a weed produce a flower by grafting on a purebred plant, and that engineering improves nature. It's true, but that engineering is a product of nature. And of course, this is a sly reference to the idea that she herself is a weed who's going to be grafted on to Florizel. Mm-hmm. So then he says, so stop calling the Gillivores bastards. And of course, she, in a sense, might be considered a a bastard, at least of fortune. And then she's very saucily says, well, I'm not going to plant them. (laughs) That's like wearing makeup to get a boyfriend is what she says. Let's go to that Mm -hmm. part. Because I love the way she puts it. It's something I had to look up. I'll not put the dibble in earth to set one slip of them. No more than were I painted, I would wish this youth should say twere well, and only therefore desire to breed by me. It's like putting on makeup to make someone attracted to you. So she's, in a way, she's rejecting the deceptive element, you know, the trifles, the trinkets, the flowery blooms, the charms that produce attractions. She is interested in something more essential. She's drawn to the weeds she may herself be a weed in some sense it's all it's all so beautifully done yeah it's funny how as we've said she's sort of genetically well behaved sort of genetically royal and she also has a genetic hatred for bastards i suppose that she's inherited from her father you know it, mm. <laughs> obviously the irony of this scene is of course that she is advocating against the very thing she should be advocating for and Polixenes is advocating for the very thing that he's, you know, should be advocating against, right? So Polixenes is fine with crossbreeding flowers and and refreshing or using the the baser stock to refresh the bud of nobler race. I'm partly paraphrasing there, right? So he he's fine with this in theory, but in practice, he's going to get very upset when he finds out that Florizel is engaged to a shepherdess. And Perdita, you know, though she is very concerned about. Florizel's family's disapproval should be advocating for this mixing because this is what she wants to do herself or 
is what she thinks is what she wants to do because she doesn't know that she's royal. I wonder about the significance of that irony and why the two are arguing at cross purposes. I mean, I think it's really funny that this is happening and delightful. And I love Perdita's sauciness, as, as you say. Um, and I love the fact that even after Polixenes gives her this whole speech about why, you know, he's this older man who's, even though he's dressed up, he must still kind of register as a, an older man and someone who maybe she should respect or something. That even after he gives her this pretty well thought out argument, she says, eh, I still don't buy it. You know, <laughs> she's not moved by it, which I think is really funny because you expect her to come back and say, oh, you know, you're right. Instead, she doubles down, um, which I love. I want to connect it back to this god and goddess idea, this, this idea that she's goddess-like pranked up. And also the fact that, you know, I'm thinking about our previous conversations about sticky language or contagious language. Florizel says, calls her Flora, right? So a kind of um, connection to a, the derivation of his name, or maybe Florizel comes from Flora. I'm, I'm not sure. Right, So he gives this idea that she's the goddess of flowers. She takes that and says, oh, she's just pranked up like a goddess. But in fact, the gods really haunt both Florizel and Perdita's speech throughout. I mean, she says, now Jove afford you cause, constant invocations of the gods in her speech. She'll say later, she speaks of Proserpina later on, who's Persephone. And obviously some of this has to do with the fact that Shakespeare is operating in this sort of liminal space between Christianity and, and this sort of old-fashioned Roman mythology, right, that he often invokes in these romances. But it's significant because she's, she's dressed up supposedly like a goddess and because Florizel then says in defense of his own love for her, that the gods themselves humbling their deities to love have taken the shapes of beasts upon them. Jupiter became a bull and bellowed, the green Neptune a ram and bleated, and the fire-robed god golden Apollo a poor humble swain as I seem now. Their transformations were never for a piece of beauty rarer, nor in a way so chaste, since my desires run not before mine honor. I swear I'm not just trying to get in your pants, in other words. I'm trying to connect all of this together, I suppose, and ask, because I don't quite have an answer, what does all of this grafting and crossbreeding have to do with this idea of the gods assuming humble shapes to get with the people that they love? Obviously, on its face, these two things are running parallel to each other. The lofty gods are crossbreeding with the baser stock, but the necessity of transformation is the thing that goes beyond the parallel. Right For the flower to be grafted, for the flower to be crossbred, the nobler race of flower does not have to pretend to be something baser in order to be grafted with a weed, say. And also, how does that come together with this idea that actually there is no crossbreeding going on at all, that Perdita is royal? Do you see what I'm saying? And I don't even know how to express this well, much less tease out these various threads that are going on. So... In other words, what is the play trying to say about all of this crossbreeding? Presumably it's advocating against it. Then it seems to be advocating against this idea that one has to dress up or pretend to be anything other than one is, even though that the theme of disguise is a constant theme in, in Act 4. So, you know, this thing that Florizel says about the gods is very odd because for the most part, 
the transformations, as far as I remember, would happen to facilitate rape. That's another, yes. Like Zeus. I didn't even want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> turning into a swan, right? It's Zeus that turns into a swan, rapes later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did a lot of that. He Europa the and the bull. Bull, yep. So Florizel is disguised to look lower than he is. She's disguised to look higher than she thinks she is, although she is just as high. And his argument is that, hey, look, I'm, I'm like a god <laughs> lowering myself to be with a mortal. It's normal. Don't worry about it. It's not actually a very encouraging line of argument, if you ask me. But mm-hmm. even apart from the rape connotations, which, you know, Shakespeare is very familiar with Ovid and he knows exactly what he's doing there. So then the question is, you know, why are we getting this idea of the grafting onto a weed or the crossing of low and high when we know that they are both high? And I've made this association between, you know, the lowness is the bare reality and the weed, and maybe it's more like winter. And the highness I associate with the trappings associated with royalty. I'm thinking of Lear here. In the end, it's all just custom. What makes a judge? Well, they wear a robe is Lear's argument. And what makes someone royal versus not royal? I think the suggestion is that it's not really a matter of nature. It's a matter of custom, even though that runs against this idea that she is naturally a princess. But maybe we're just supposed to think that she's actually just good-natured. And in fact, it's her, what seems to be high in her is precisely her weed status. She's been raised by a shepherd. She's honest. She's straightforward. Maybe if we think about it, maybe she is much like a shepherd's daughter and maybe she's much closer in a way to reality than these others. She's more, she's closer to the performance than the language. She's closer to something real. And so we can think again, the advantages of reality over mind and language and the way she can instantiate that and so pay off. You know, what, what's grievous about the first half of the play is the lack of reality. First, it's about the inability to repay hospitality with a thank you. And then it's about Leontes being cut off from reality. But Perdita is down to earth. She was not just, you know, <laughs> she was put out to pasture, not really to pasture. She was put out, you know, to be exposed and to die that way. But in a way, she's become creature of the earth, maybe. She actually says, by the way, she gives them summer flowers and says those are for men of middle age, I guess, because summer is in the middle. Mm. So to make it another association, I don't know if I'm really getting at your question, but the winner's tale kind of has the status of the flowery bloom, strangely enough. And if we associate that with a kind of charm, because the ballads that Autolycus is selling are winner's tales. And it's the kind of thing you can use to win a lover, but it's also, if it's a fairy tale to some extent, which I think is different, but related, you know, it's the kind of thing you tell to a child, but it's the type of thing that Mamelius himself is relating. And we wonder if, you know, when Mamelius tells his mom, I'm going to tell you a scary tale, you kind of wonder if everything that comes after, right, is just Mm -hmm. Mamelius's story. But these fantasies are ways of deceiving ourselves, but they're also ways of loving. They're ways of establishing 
status. So I don't have any overarching conclusion about how all of that is related. I think we should leave that up to listeners, have them tell us <laughs> how all oh, of that is related. Oh, what a great cop out. Yeah. <laughs> we got to use that more um, often. We do. Uh, <laughs> We're going to start soliciting questions from listeners. You know, if we want to do a bonus episode, like a 20 minute thing sometime, we can actually answer questions about. Oh, I love that idea. Some of the stuff. Yeah. Well, your down to earthness, uh, I was thinking along those exact same lines because I thought, well, you know, Perdita hasn't been, you know, she's neither the result of a grafting between higher and lower stock, nor is her future marriage a grafting of higher and lower stock, right? Because Hermione, we know, is the daughter of a king as well. So really what has happened to her is she's been transplanted to richer soil to grow or healthier soil. So I like this idea that she's earthy, she's down to earth, right? And that what's good in her could be the very fact that she's been raised by the shepherd in the sort of rich soil of what, I don't know, reality or something, rather than the kind of stifling atmosphere of Cecilia. Besides the fact that her father wants to kill her, not a great place maybe to grow up. A lot of people die there. So with that in mind, you know, she seems with this earthiness of hers to kind of take on both the earth and what the earth produces. She becomes kind of like spring itself in this speech to Florizel where she wants to cover him with all these different types of flowers. And she, she names a bunch of different ones that she wants to heap over him. Yeah, I love that line. He's teasing and, you know, what do you mean? Like funeral flowers? <laughs> mm-hmm. am, I, am I a dead man? Then she conjures up this idea of him suddenly turning into a hill or an embankment, right? And the flowers springing from that, which is beautiful. And then she gives an alternative, which is that he comes back to life. He's actually, no, but you're in my arms and quick, which I think is evocative of him actually going from death to life in her Mm. arms. It's a very Cinderella moment, except it's not sleeping, it's from death. So... I like that. And I think there's too many contradictions. It's confusing. Is winter representative of reality? Or if, you know, if the winner's tale is the superstitious, deceptive thing, then is it the representative of the other? Which is the representative of which? I think they're both representative of both in a way. They're purposefully being mixed up. I think we're not meant to draw a solid conclusion one way or another. They're right, just as a flower can be a flower of death or a flower of life. We're meant not to draw a single conclusion about the meaning here. These things can be interpreted differently and they mean different things depending on the context and love and life and death are related in this intricate way and love and I don't know if hate is the word, but love and thieving or deception and and all the rest. All right. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end part five here. We are not quite through act four, Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to finish that up in part six and then do a quick act five as well. It would have been nice to have these (laughs) line up (laughs) with the acts, but that's not going to be the way it happens. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airwave shows, like Good Job Brain, a podcast that's part quiz show and part offbeat trivia, and Big Picture Science, which engages the public with modern science research 
through smart and humorous storytelling. That's airwavemedia.com.